go to Mum's, kill Phil, sorry, grab Liz, go to the Winchester, have a nice cold pint, and wait for all this to blow over. How's that for a slice of fried gold? Yeah, boy! So you know it's a really bad idea? Walking eight kilometers in new sneakers. Yeah, I wouldn't do that. I, I did that. It could have been worse. Uh, I've had, uh, my feet have been in worse shape over this pandemic when I was walking in just like hiking boots that I thought were appropriate for walking in length that were they were not. Uh, but uh, it's they're, they're, they're a little tender right now. Were they new shoes that you had curbside pickup or were they shoes that you actually knew sort of fit you? Oh, these, no, these were like shipped to me. So I, I, you know, yeah. <laughs> so along with the fact that I didn't actually try them on, I just took a running stab at what my size should be. And, and yep. yeah, and they are a little snug. I then decided, Hey, I'm going to take them for the full 8k that I've been doing most days. And around kilometer number six, I was like, Oh, this is not a good idea. <laughs> Greetings and salutations. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada, and you are listening to a matinee cast presentation of the Winchester Chronicles. This is dispatch number eight. Our mission is this COVID-19 is affecting everybody's lives. And obviously that includes being able to go to the movies still. Yes, still. That means that our usual discussion of cinematic passion and perspective needs to shift. However, it doesn't mean that the overall discussion of film needs to stop. While we wait for the whole thing to blow over, we virtually sit here in our virtual Winchester pub and turn our attention to the best films of the decade gone by instead of the new releases we usually cover. Today, we reach an interesting point in the Winchester Chronicles. After a series comprised mostly of various award winners and nominees with one horror outlier, we go further down the spiral, which is really what I wanted this series to be about. Really and truly, if you look around at critics' lists of the best films of the last decade, 10 or 12 films are going to come up over and over. Your Aromas, your Moonlights, your Parasites, etc. Nothing against those films. I, too, found them amazing, and that's why we already covered them on the matinee cast proper. Today, though, what we arrive at is a more personal choice, a film undoubtedly incredible, but not the sort of title you see on a lot of fan and critics' best ofs, which is usually the wheelhouse of today's guests. He has a taste for the stranger, the darker, the more off-putting, the downright divisive, and that is why we love him. His work can be found at ScreenAnarchy.com. Kurt Halfyard is here. How are you, man? Oh, thanks for having me back. I'm fabulous. Uh, surviving in my house. <laughs> I mean, when this whole thing went sideways, I was wondering if you were ever going to come home because you were you were down mm. stateside and it's and you were on one of your trips, you one of the half-yard voyages that goes and goes and goes for like weeks at a time. And I just remember watching your your in your various social media feeds and wondering, I'm like, is he just going to get stuck there? So it's good to have you back. Before we get started on the show, just one quick note. Uh, when I mapped out the Winchester Chronicles, I kind of thought we would be getting back to life as usual by now, and we're really not. I think I'm probably going to need at least three more of these, uh, which means I'm looking for guests. So if you're a listener of the show and you've wanted to come on and talk about one of the best films of the decade, please get in touch with me, Ryan at the matinee.ca um, or Twitter or Facebook or any of the normal places. Um, I'd love to have you on. I'd love to talk about a film that you think is one of the best of the decade. 
decade that I didn't cover um, in the main show. But on our eighth dispatch of the Winchester Chronicles, we will be discussing the killing of a sacred deer. We'll be turning the record over to play the other side, but first we begin with Creature Comforts. Once again, if you're new here, Creature Comforts is all sorts of activities or media or whatnot that we are using to keep us uh, amused in this time of pandemic when we can't go out and do our normal bits of amusement. Kurt, uh, I, I know that your Creature Comforts are a little bit different than what we've been talking about so far, but uh, what have you been keeping busy with uh, while you've been locked down? Yeah, I, I, don't, I'm not, I haven't listened to all of your episodes, but uh, comic books is not what I've been keeping myself occupied with. <laughs> um, television miniseries and binge watching is not, not what I've been keeping myself occupied with. Um, but in the spirit of your Instagram feed, I have been reading a lot of books, but mostly even more than the reading it's been cooking. I okay. I've, I've put a lot of weight on in our house, <laughs> partly because I'm not getting as much exercise, but partly when I was working from home and getting stir crazy from not being in the lab, I just treated the kitchen, like my chemistry lab. Um, for idea. those of you who know I work, that's my day job is working in a chemistry lab. So yeah, more elaborate meals, uh, lots more stocks and sauces and things that are, you know, multi-step prep. Um, and that has been delightful. I got my daughter who's 16 or almost 16. She now cooks three meals a week. Oh, cool like chef sous chef kind of thing going and now she's lovely she's she's although she's on teenager hours so she might be like cooking some meal at like four in the morning when everybody is sleeping um <laughs> or making the a best lasagna time. at midnight <laughs> um yeah so that's been my creature comforts which i guess is exactly as it should be well the cool thing about that is you're the kind of person um you know the part of your instagram feed is your your foodie adventures in in creation more than consumption you're like you're not the kind of person who goes to the, like, even though you do go to cool restaurants um you know both cheap and expensive um your your adventures are also in creation in terms of grilling and stewing and that kind of thing yeah so way more than way more than restaurants yeah. i only do restaurants when i'm at film festivals yeah so the uh, so the whole idea to me that you were taking that kind of passion for creation for you know not just 30 minute meals, but for the kind of slow and low Sunday meals that, you know, kind of a, some places gone the wayside really. Um, mm. and I'm like, so you're taking that approach already and you're giving it even more time and energy. I can't even imagine like what you would have been, you know, conjuring up with even like, I'm like, okay, well now I have a whole day of nothing. So what am I going to do with that much more time and energy? Yeah, that's, that's the beauty of it. I mean, big, like all day slow cooking meals is 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 what it's all about. I mean, every day is Sunday <laughs> for uh, <laughs> this is um, true for this. Like we always have our Sunday, yeah, like exactly like you said, we always have our slow and low Sundays. Like a Sunday, like a British family dinner. Um, but now it's like, what day is it? I really do feel that way now. Um, it's slowed down recently because I am back in the office. I have been for a number of weeks now. But man, from 
April Fools to uh, June first. That was a that was a good run, the, and it had its unique set of challenges because uh, getting certain types of ingredients are very difficult. A just the regular grocery store was difficult. Yeah, and then now if you if you want like squid ink, that's yeah, good you know, luck. A yeah. little more challenging. No, no, no. You'd be surprised. Now I have like a 42 centimeter, oh, takes man. two burners to operate. Oh, man. When, you, when you plunk it down on the table, it's like, boom, <laughs> you know, it's got the two handles. Uh, it's, it's, uh, yeah. So I, it's fun. I, I, I love, I love the excuse that this whole thing was for a lot of us to buy stuff that we, you know, we had long lusted over. It's like, well, now is time to buy those. Now it's time. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm not going to spend too long on mine because I know it's not really your wheelhouse and it's the kind of thing that I'm sure a lot of other people have done. But after not even considering it for the first two months, two and a half months of lockdown, come mid-June, I finally decided, screw it. I'm going to cave and finally do the Marvel rewatch. The whole... Yeah, yeah. That's a lot of hours. It is a lot of hours. Now, I mean, the good thing is, for a lot of it, I did other things while I was doing it. Like, uh, we we had puzzles, so I'd be working on a puzzle while something played in the background or something like that. Or I'd be cooking and and listening over my shoulder. Um, I am reasonably confident that I will never be able to do this again, barring a major injury that incapacitates me. Um, It's because it's you know, a good 50 or 60 hours of watching. Really? And, yeah. and they're well, adding, they're still adding. Yeah. And there's, yeah, so. there's, there's, they're still adding. Um, it's, it's, it's not like trying to rewatch the star Wars movies, which even that now is more than a whole day. Um, it's, it's you know, it's, it's 23 movies, which are all two hours, sometimes a little more than two hours. Um, and the one thing I will say is it, I did decide if I was going to do it, I wanted to watch the stories chronologically which are more or less how they were released with one or two little switches you got to take the two captain movies and put them at the front mm, the first at captain, the beginning yeah, yeah the first captain america and captain marvel they start the stories because they happen in the past and then from then on forward things are more or less sequential there's just one or two that kind of flip around the like the guardians movies are together in the middle of things mm. um it was fun uh, I, I i will say uh it was it was certainly amusing to remember some jokes and and laughs that I'd forgotten and see some little threads that they picked up later uh, come the first, like come to light the first time around. It was interesting to me that I think there's 23 films in all and 22 of them are available on most platforms. Whether the, like, I mean, Disney Plus has almost all of them. The rest are either on Netflix or on cable on demand. The one that nobody seems to want is, is the Incredible Hulk with uh, Edward Norton? So that was that was a because fun- uh, it barely <laughs> qualifies. Yeah. It's kind of pre Iron Man. Yeah, it takes sometimes a few movies for them to get the look of these characters right. Like I knew how much Black Widow was going to change in terms of her look. Her look in that first movie is completely absurd, fanboyish. By the time that she's now down to something that's much more utilitarian, um, oh, the inver- costuming, costuming, and just but even just like the first one, her hair is down past her shoulders, and when she's fighting, it's always whipping around and it looks ridiculous. Um, versus now, she's almost she's got her hair usually a lot shorter and or pulled back, which you know when you think of a soldier who's always going to be physical, it's like this is how a soldier would go into combat. It's also true of Thor. Thor in the first movie, especially, does not look right. Thor is very, he's very pale 
I like his eyebrows are even bleached. His hair is almost white. And it's and like forgetting about the fact that they cut his hair in in Ragnarok. Mm. He just does not look right in that first movie at all. So, yeah, watching the evolution for, as I said, probably the only time I'm ever going to do this was was fun to do. OK, what else you been doing? Uh, yeah, my other project. Well, I, I've been reading a lot of books, but uh, uh, I decided um, well, when I found them on Apple Books, uh, that I would just attempt to read all. I don't know if it's twenty one or twenty three. Uh, all of the Patrick O'Brien Master. Oh my Commander god, novels. those are so the Jack Ong, Stephen Madron. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're big books. Yeah, and they start in like eighteen oh one, and they go to like eighteen. 30. <laughs> um, how far in are you? Uh, well, I, it was a weird situation that, uh, the Apple books platform, which is the only place I get virtual books and there were no bookstores open. And if you price those books out physically, like as a set, they're bloody expensive. Oh yeah. Um, like way more than they should be oh, like yeah. in terms of, I don't know, maybe it's, I don't know why, but they're, you're talking $40 for a trade Ooh. paperback. That is, that's too much, right? Yeah. yeah. Even anyway, by, even by, you know, I'll throw money around at books, but even for my, well, and on top of that, that's real in ways when you're buying them in like a set, right. right? So you should get a discount if you're buying a set. Yeah. Anyway, they're like 10 bucks a pop on the, on Apple books, but Apple books starts at like book seven. Oh, so I read seven, eight, nine. Okay. And then I'm like, okay, that's cool. Uh, cause I think nine is actually the, the, the movie, right. uh, the, the weird movie. Um, and then I'm like, nah, I'm going to go around and see if I can find. So I found the other ones. And then I, so I, I, I did this kind of, uh, in media res kind of version where I just started. And then I'm like, that's kind of the air I know from watching the film. And then I rolled back to when, you know, he's like, 19 or whatever and he's just been promoted and then i've and now i'm i've just caught back up to seven well and then i'll skip the three because i read them and then carry on to book 20 i mean he i think he died in 98 or 99 or 2000 so like they made the actual Peter Weir film or it probably went into production at around the time he died and his final novel was never finished, but they published it anyway. Oh man. Like, now, so, the, the one thing I got to ask though, because it's been, it's been a while since I've read any sort of a series in, in sequence. Um, I deliberately usually try right, to break up. Uh, are you like, are you finding enough division between story one, story two, story three, or are they really starting to blend together? Oh, it's, it's fascinating because the first couple books feel like he writes a book and then you come back, maybe it's a few months later mm -hmm. and you know, boom, you're off into the next book. But by about book six, I feel like a character is mid sentence and then they just pick up the sentence right after. So I think when he started writing, he's like, well, I have all of this crazy, you know, night, early 19th century nautical minutia. Uh, I'm going to try and put that into a character using archives. And, you know, it's basically historical fiction. Right. And you know, the first two he wrote 
as almost standalone books. And then he's like, okay, no, that's what, that's, that's my job now. So then now it becomes like he's writing one before he's done the other. So they, they really seamlessly flow together without break. So it is like, it's like watching, um, like if, if you started a, like a big long, like the Sopranos or something, and right. you're now just reading them, you know, the series is finished yeah. and you're just reading them and you just keep, you're like, you can either take a week's break or you could close that one and open the next one and and go on. My other creature comfort um, for the week is actually, I mean, I haven't really been talking about movies in this section too much, but um, the week that we were recording this, uh, we lost director Joel Schumacher. He died at, I, I think his age was 80. He had not been that active the last... 10 years or so, which I mean, you know, the, you, when you give the fact that he was A, old, B, sick, you kind of understand why. But his filmography is fascinating. I mean, from in, in the 80s, he was like one of the guys. Um, yeah, I know. He was, he was the writer on The Wiz back in the 70s. I'm, I'm sure he wrote other ones that I didn't really notice. Um, and then you get into this strange interesting period in the 90s and then in the new century where he was doing stuff like i mean he did the film adaptation of phantom of the opera but he also did a really underrated movie by my estimation tigerland which was colin yeah. farrell's yeah i know he did phone booth also yeah phone, phone, booth, phone booth was uh i i saw phone booth at tiff um actually and um i still love phone booth for for what it is so there's keeper sutherland and the upper deck narrating it because yeah, that should have been pretty, that would have been great he lives in toronto yeah. I, I don't know if he did at the time um <laughs> schumacher so when she the news came down that schumacher died i was like okay we gotta we gotta watch schumacher tonight um so we went back and we watched the 1987 lost boys Oh, is it that far into the eighties? I thought it was yeah. earlier. No, oh. no, it's uh, it is a little bit later than it seems. Um, I mean, mm. you know, he's got Kiefer in it, and Kiefer Kiefer shows up in a lot of his movies. Yep. But this is kind of prime Kiefer. This is like way before twenty four. This is when Kiefer was like an up and coming. No, this is the dovetail with Stand by Me and this, yeah. where he plays like the mean older brother. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. This movie is not dated in a bad way. Like it's crazy, kind of going back to some of these eighties movies now because you find that a lot of attitudes and language in movies that you thought were totally cool is really, really not. Um, and it's just getting worse and worse every year as we kind of evolve as a society and realize you know inappropriate conduct did not stop at 1979 inappropriate behavior always feels to peter out about 28 years ago yeah and that's a sliding scale yeah. it's constantly sliding because we're constantly pushing forward yeah. eventually people will look at a movie where someone eats meat on screen and be like what the hell yeah or, yeah yeah you know exactly. what i mean like so i do i'm happy to report that it is not dated in any of those ways you can still you can show this to your kids you can show that you know show this to your mom everything's gonna be fine um it's just it's dated you know like like all 80s movies it's dated in terms of the style it's dated in terms of like the clothes and the music um it's funny in that it's a small seaside vacation town that somehow has both a video rental shop and a comic book store which you would not find now you know you like right besides, like a video shop just is not going to exist and a place like this is not going to have the niche retail of a comic book store they're going to have like the, mm. the you know the broadest cross-section of customer base possible um mm. but it's uh it, you know it's it's still a great vampire story in a 
post-Jordan Peele us world, it's great to see the influence that this movie had on that movie. Like, the opening of that movie is basically this entire movie. Oh, that, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I never, never would have put that together on my own. But, yeah, well, uh, I mean, they use the same carnival. It's the same, the same right, amusement the park is in both. And between kind of that nighttime, summer, midway aesthetic and that beach summertime, yep, nope, the, the, you know, uh, that whole I, opening. Except, except in us, the digital photography would make nighttime be crystal clear oh, and yeah. I, so i'm guessing the dark areas in the lost boys are dark <laughs> yeah like they're they're hard to see things yeah but it's uh yeah no it was it was you know if somebody says like i've never seen a joel schumacher film that might be where i start them uh, probably actually either that or flatliners because i feel saint almost fire is very brat packy and you can kind of interchange that mm. with a bunch of yeah, other yeah, 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 yeah. movies but these yeah. two like really have his stamp all over them I like the strange nonsensical variety of Joel Schumacher, but if you had to add what's good about his filmography and what's bad, the net is negative. I'm trying to think of who uh, in that sort of jobber kind of zone where you're like, wow, that's the, those movies are so consistently better than they should be. And I don't, I feel um, I mean, many people would have said Brian De Palma, maybe in that case. But in the in in Schumacher's case, there's some, there's always something good in his films. There's always something interesting in his yeah. films. But then, the good films always have a lot of Ugh, in them too. You know, yeah, like yeah. I like Flatliners, but there's a lot of awful in yes, Flatliners. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah. So, um, and was... I never saw that one with Jim Carrey. That that would be um, the number twenty three. I think yep. he did that. Yeah, he did. Um, he did. Um, and eight millimeter. You're, he has a weird filmography. Eight millimeter. Um, he did um, one that I'd be interested to revisit. I watched it a few years ago, but I'd be interested to revisit it now, just in terms of where we are with queer culture is uh he did flawless with um phil seymour yeah, hoffman phil and, robert seymour de niro. and robert de niro you know yes. yeah he, i didn't know that was him yeah yeah and and that's that that was the 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 fun thing to read this week with all the you know kind of immemorials of his work is they said here is a guy who quietly pushed gay culture into his very mainstream movies and if you don't believe that look at what he did to batman after tim burton oh, started the, nipples, the, the infamous yeah, yeah, the color the you know like you look at his treatment of poison ivy is basically a drag queen it's yeah, and, yeah. and it's like well his, he his knew treatment what he was of, doing. Uh, arnold schwarzenegger is basically yes, drag queen. yes so <laughs> thank you joel um, schumacher um you know it's you he, the, he's kind of got like you said he's got a very checkered filmography but his work is worth studying for those bits that really jump out even if you got to slog through some weird to get there we have a movie to talk about so we're gonna cut the creature comforts there we've got a humdinger that um is uh it's not exactly a movie that has a twist but if you haven't seen it you may want to miss the spoiler section because this is a movie that builds to something very specific that we will be discussing but do come back right after this quick break we're going to be talking about killing of a sacred deer right after this Gonna let it burn, 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 burn. We 
feature for Dispatch number eight is The Killing of a Sacred Deer, which came out in 2017. It was directed and written by Yorgos Lanthimos, co-written by Ephthemus Philippou. It stars Colin Farrell, Nicole Kidman, Barry Keown, Rafi Cassidy, Sonny Suljic, Bill Camp, and Alicia Silverstone. Strangely, <laughs> Killing of a Sacred Deer is the story of the Murphy family. The patriarch of the affluent clan is Stephen, a heart surgeon played by Colin Farrell. Stephen's wife, Anna, is an optometrist played by Nicole Kidman, and their children, Kim and Bob, are both well-mannered, studious, early teenagers. That's Cassidy and Soljic, respectively. On the surface, the family seems to have it all. Perfect setup for a story like this for things to go very, very wrong. Stephen is often found in the company of a teenage boy named Martin. That's Keon. They go to lunch. Stephen gives him tokens. They have a gentle, if somewhat strained, rapport. Martin is even invited to the Murphy homestead for dinner, and Stephen is brought home in turn to meet Martin's mother. But all the while, their association is very unclear. Eventually, the truth comes to light. Martin's father died on Stephen's operating table. Stephen has been associating with the young man out of some misplaced mix of duty, guilt, or probably both. When Martin's demands grow too much for Stephen, he rebukes them. And that's when Martin issues an ultimatum. Either offer up a blood sacrifice to restore balance, or he will soon lose his entire family. Sounds like a hoot, right? In considering where to begin with the killing of a sacred deer, I was struck with the opening image, a surgical imagery of a beating heart. One cannot escape the contradiction that something we associate so closely with feeling, with emotion, is in truth clinical and grotesque. It leads one to wonder about the two hours traffic that this film unfolds. So pop quiz hotshot, how is one supposed to emotionally approach something as emotionally detached as the killing of a sacred deer? Where do we get our prompts for feeling in something so clinical and so grotesque? With all of Yorgos Lanthimos' films, he takes you so far out of normal human communication and etiquette that you can reapproach all of those relationships like a forensic entomologist you know what i mean you've got all the insects pinned to the thing and you could kind of go let's how are we going to break this down and and um and you know like you said you're looking at this heart and it's pumping and it's pumping and occasionally the surgeon will like adjust a clamp or 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 a cloth around it but you're really focused on on this thing we don't look at that in that way normally at all the heart is usually romanticized and it's more of a metaphor than an actual thing and i feel all of uh his dialogue and his characters speak in utterly alien language that you have to set and go wow yeah the human experience is is kind of idiotic but (laughs) here's the genius you feel in his films nevertheless we are so programmed to feel even though these movies are so strange and absurd and frankly off-putting yeah the feeling still comes through. There are there are weepy moments in this movie. Mm-hmm. Not like, oh, my heart is breaking, I love the world weepy, but like genuine grief yeah. seeps through in this movie. And uh, that's pretty impressive. I, I, I had the privilege uh, of watching The Killing of the Sacred Deer in three different countries, three different film festivals, plus two um like regular cinema screenings right so i've seen it with a lot of different audiences in like you know so spain the u.s and canada um and and in canada 
both in Montreal and in Toronto. So, uh, and what I love is the audience, even though it's a culturally different space and a different makeup, there's always the same groups of people in the audience. Yeah. There are yeah. people that are just right into it. There's people that are like, what the, what hell? the hell did I just get and, into? And what yeah. did I just watch? That's a good thing. I mean, the fact that his previous films generally, uh, well, the lobster uh, aside, his his dog tooth, was his, which was his debut film, had no actors. Like it was in Greek, it 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 had no known actors. That not a lot of people are going to find that easily. Whereas this, I mean, Colin Farrell uh, and Nicole Kidman, uh, that's a those are heavy hitting Hollywood movie stars, right? Yeah. So I mean, they're, the, they're, they're going to take people out of their comfort zone. Absolutely. To to kind of answer my own question, like I mean. I when I thought about how are we supposed to get into the feeling of this movie, um, given that it's so clinical and grotesque, is I'm taking a cheat. We're not. This is a movie. This this is the kind of movie that does not make a whole lot of money and does not often get a whole lot of support, and is usually actually not even done on this kind of scale. That is meant to tap right into the cerebral. It is meant to completely screw with your head and take you somewhere that you cannot even conceive of, which I really felt was epitomized with the tonality of this movie. This movie is very, very cold, like right down to the fact that there's a lot of whites in this movie. And I, but I mean, in the background where you have the actors framed and then there's like all white. Yes. Yeah, yes, this, absolutely. this movie is very, very clinical, the same way that we get that opening medical footage of the heart beating. It's, you know, perfectly it's, lit. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's the thing. It's it is very handsome and it is it is just eye popping to look at, but it is never meant to really emotionally draw us in except to recoil at how screwed up things are getting. And that is what makes this story certainly one of the best of the decade? I, I would absolutely, I was really happy when you put this on your list of movies of the best of the decade. I'm like, that is something I want to talk about. Um, that is meant to just basically take a corkscrew to your brain and just keep on twisting for two hours in the way people talk, in the way that they act. Mm, everything. Everything. Yeah. It's a giant act of provocation, but the adjective that you're looking to sum up all of those things precise photography alien coldness uh the phrase is kubrickian like yeah. there's no way around it that's kubrick was both praised and damned yeah. for doing that his entire career yeah i mean that's that's the crazy thing i mean we might as well jump straight to talking about yorgos because yorgos outside of film going circles Yorgos Lanthimos is not exactly a brand, kind of like what we're going back to with directors. Like, you know, if you tell people, yeah. name me a director, you know, you'll get your Spielberg, you'll get your Scorsese, you'll go down the list. And maybe if you get a mentioning 50, you'll get to Yorgos Lanthimos, even though he is now Oscar nominee, Yorgos Lanthimos. Um, his arc over the last decade is fascinating because here's a guy who started outside of the Hollywood system making his movies in whatever, uh, I, I think, isn't uh, Dogtooth Greek? Yep. Yeah, so so making making his movies in Europe, making his movies in Greece, and then, you know, the studios learn about his talent and this, these crazy stories that he likes to tell, and they start basically saying, hey, what do you want to do with a bigger budget? And he starts telling stories like 
the lobster and killing of a sacred deer and then, you know, really hitting a home run with the favorite. Yorgos, I'm sure Yorgos is one of your guys. Like if you see his name on a movie, you go. Here's here's the thing. Um, One, I was super pissed at TIFF because they didn't actually bring the favorite that year. And I thought you've got every other one. Yeah. I've seen every other one of his films. Yeah. Dog, Alps, uh, The Lobster. I've seen them all. And why would you leave that one? The most <laughs> commercially palatable yeah. one, even though it's still weird as all hell. Yeah. It's still the most like you may the casting even in, in that movie is is like screams like you're going to get a different type of moviegoer yeah. than like that would have taken a chance on Dogtooth. The, the funny thing about the favorite is that even though it is still quintessentially a Yorgos movie, it is the least Yorgos Yorgos movie. It is. It, 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 you, you were saying like that's his home run or whatever. I feel that's his. I'm going to take a break. Break. Like <laughs> Killing of a Sacred Deer is unquestionably the ten year culmination of what he started. Dogtooth was so lightning strike yeah. that it started an entire film movement in greece called the 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 greek new weird which yeah. is a plan which is a play on the french new wave, new right? wave. So, yeah, yeah. so you had like um what was it called uh attenberg oh yeah 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 and then you had miss violence mm-hmm. and like the, these are these hyper strange non-human behavior and most interesting all of the the early ones, static camera work. Right. Um, it was with the killing of the sacred deer that Yorgos moves into his own camera language, that super high up dolly shot that yep. followed the camera almost stalks people yeah, yeah. Like from up on high. It's a very straight. He often does low, like, um, you know, Garrett Brown, uh, big wheel shining shots Mm -hmm. as well. But the bulk is this weird, you know, I'm down in the bottom third or Colin Farrell's down in the bottom third of the frame as it follows him through the hospital. Uh, and when I love the moving camera and then when you get to the favorite, he's like, I'm going to do these corridor crawls with the widest, (laughs) lowest stop lens I can find and you get these weird stretches of the corridors. I mean, I, I, I tell everybody that watches the favorite that forget about the plot and everything, everything that's important that's happening in the favorite is how people walk down the hall. Yeah. Everything is yeah. how people walk down. The hall. You can get the mood, you can get where it's good, where it's going literally and figuratively. Yorgos is the kind of person who will lure you in, whether you're a cinephile and you think that you're just kind of getting into something sort of strange or you're, an average normie hey what's on netflix oh there's this movie with colin farrell and nicole kidman i'll watch that and you just start going down this path and on like unknowing where you're gonna go and he's gonna take you somewhere you had no idea that you were ever gonna go there and you're really questioning whether you wanted to go there at the end yeah and there is a rich film history in killing of a sacred deer like i think there is a micro subgenre of supernatural stranger comes into slightly bourgeois family and destroys it. <laughs> yeah. Right? Oh yeah. Um like I when mean, we talk about the other side, I've I'll, I'll give you the titles. I mean it's but- it's crazy because like you you talk about this movie and Yorgos's career as being Kubrickian, which it absolutely is. Um I would also say that this movie, in a very strange way, is also very Hitchcockian. Well, the score alone is 
uh, Bernard Herman score, even though it's not Bernard Herman, like all those really needling strings yeah. and, and then it does the, um, uh, like the wobbling, like sheet of aluminum yeah. kind of yeah. score, yeah. you know, like that. I love that. Like, it's so the score is off putting, but it weirdly is classical cinema. If you go back to, um, like the original Cape Fear, mm-hmm. uh, Psycho, like yeah. that type of score. And, you know, the movie is in that space. Yeah, yeah. Right? That's, and that's, where, what, I'm, and that's what I'm saying. It's a it's a strangely Hitchcockian movie. Like you wouldn't, it's not a whodunit. It's not a, you know, it's it's not really. It's a who will do it and yeah, how. And how. <laughs> um, I mean, the thing I love about this movie is I adore movies that use the visual contradiction of making a film where the story is so ugly um look so handsome it is precisely shot every which i think is all of his films but he is at his absolute peak in this movie of framing color balancing because you you mentioned the white stuff but then he does a lot of stuff with what is one of the worst cliches in movies the orange and teal kind of look Mm -hmm. where he does like this nighttime with like one orange window lit in the shot and and it does not look cliche when he does it no like it's one of those things of yeah i get it every michael bay movie and 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 straight to dvd action movie in the late 90s looks like this yeah but for that shot it totally is appropriate and it totally feels fresh when you watch this movie in 2017 you realize just how much of the actual craftsmanship is lost in Hollywood movies these days. Like, because they're like, wow, you know, your regular action movie and the occasional comedy looked this good Mm -hmm. in the sixties and seventies when you had all the same people, it didn't matter whether it was a biblical epic or whatever. It was all the same people contracted into the studio. So those movies were really shot with care. Yeah. Right. It's, it's the kind of movie, I mean, the the one thing I've I've said is like I you know I I I'm fine with my franchises I enjoy a good cheeseburger as much as the next person but I don't want franchises to take over the cinema landscape I mean when cinemas are open let us be clear but I don't want franchises to take over the cinema landscape to the point where a movie like the killing of a sacred deer or the last black man in San Francisco, or even something like moonlight is kicked all the way down into cinema 12. And that's the thing is killing of a sacred deer. It's a movie that has a budget. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's an adult, it's a movie for grownups that, you know, was, was handed some money to actually make it look handsome and get some names into it. And that's the thing that is going away. You know, that that's the thing is, is if a studio thinks, uh, you know, can we, are we not going to be able to make more than $150 million? I don't care if your name is Martin Scorsese, we're not approving this budget. Meanwhile, you get people like Yorgos who basically have to make these things on spec and sell them to a studio yep. like A24. That's, that's why we have Annapurna, A24, and Neon doing all the hard work yeah. so that people will take the risk. And it's like, if if you make like uh, the bad batch or or uh zero dark 30 or or um spring breakers uh yeah. which would be a good analog to this um you you know that one of those three stu- or midsummer um one of those three studio or outlets will 
probably pick up your movie, right? Yeah. Like, so you can get, we can spend 18 million and not all have to sell our houses at yeah. the end, you know? So, you know, we've got these two stars, these two A-listers at the front of this movie doing some really weird shit. We've got Colin Farrell. First of all, Colin Farrell, I mean, Colin Farrell, he's really hit or miss. There's sometimes where Colin Farrell's in a movie and it's just like, oh boy, here we go. There's other times Colin Farrell's in a movie and he is just right where he needs to be all the time. And I really think that that's, that's not a Colin Farrell problem. That's usually a director and writer problem. Um, Colin Farrell in this movie, uh, they, they both him and Nicole Kidman do this crazy thing where every scene is stone bloody cold. Like yep. I don't think anybody ever speaks above a normal decimal, even though the world is falling down around them. Even yeah, they though, have one fight where that's the punctuation mark where that rule is violated. Yeah. But the rest of it is domestic minutia with eggshells scattered everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> you must like both of them in this movie must have been right in your wheelhouse. Well, both of those actors do take chances. Yeah. And I feel Colin Farrell is to Yorgos Lanthimos what John Goodman is to the Coen brothers. So he knows how to deliver in that space and like he's brilliant in the lobster mm -hmm. and the lobster's pretty bloody ambitious on its own but this is even particularly in the dialogue itself yeah. is yeah. is a, another notch up and he doesn't even have to rely on his eyebrows which is the colin farrell like you know in bruges colin farrell's performance is mostly great because of his eyebrows and his shoulders right? it's all it's all yeah. it's all above the collarbone yeah, yeah, yeah above the yeah. whereas here he's got the big you know kind of graying beard he does not do like the pouty colin farrell comedy shtick right. he's it's an insular like how do i get out of this without acknowledging it's happening yeah <laughs> like yeah. it's that's a that's like a that's like a you know gosling and nicholas winding Revin. there's another actor that that yeah that matches the director um and oh man he's good in this and nicole kidman all of her career after she divorced tom cruise has been taking chances everything nicole kidman does you know the occasional aquaman or right. uh bewitched aside yeah. um she takes massive uh, chances. What she's reminding right. me of is what we're seeing out of um, the Twilight couple. What we're seeing now out yes. of Patterson and, and Kristen Stewart is like, here are two people who no longer need the money. You know, they made their money by age 27 and they can now just go out and do whatever weird crazy kooky movie appeals to their sensibilities. Now, I mean, in that you're still getting a Charlie's Angels and you're still getting a Batman, but you're getting far more good times and personal shopper and these really A24 neon yep. movies that may not have even got made if not for their name. And they're just like, screw it. I don't need to do this in the Hollywood sandbox anymore. And, that, and that's the thing. Nicole Kidman is doing that. Farrell seems to have found this whole second act to his, yeah. you know, like, and, he, and an impressive one. No, he's yeah. still, like you said, he still goes and does Dumbo or, yeah. or like we were talking about Tigerland in the last section when he first arrived on the scene, like kind of right at the turn of the century, he was seen as the next pretty boy, a lister. Yeah. Minority report. The yeah. role he has in Spielberg's minority he, report yeah. is what people thought that's 
what Colin Farrell's going to do. He was basically, yeah, he was basically primed to be all right, buddy. You're going to follow in the Tom, in the Tom Cruise career arc, like, yeah. and, and we're going to put you in a film with Tom Cruise. Go to it, and that didn't happen just because who knows why. So it's like, okay, now that path is gone. Where do you go now? And he went to this kind of movie. And and as and you just said, like Nicole Kidman, she got her Oscar, she well, got rid of Cruz, and she decided to start making this kind of movie. Like opposite these two big heavy hitters, we've got this kid. We've got Barry Keon. Oh, who is uh he's just a genius actor already. I mean, um, yeah. He's so like his performance in this movie, like he is so clearly on the spectrum. He's got these big bright innocent blue eyes he's got this he's not even like there's a weird um sub role in hollywood these days especially in like the genre films and it's the um it's the teenage boy that i really want to punch and no timothy chalamet timothy chalamet (laughs) ezra miller in oh yeah talk about kevin yeah yeah. well that's a nice you know that's a nice yeah uh the older brother in uh hereditary um this kid i mean he is a he's he's a real just knife turning shithead but at the same time he just seems so awkward and innocent and uh, like like i said like almost almost clueless that it's like well yeah it's like they're in the middle of some crazy conversation he's like well i gotta go to school yeah i'm like i don't want to punch you but i'm like he just this this kid just leaves everybody watching this movie and everybody in this movie so far back on their heels because he one he's the engine driving everything mm-hmm. and he's almost like the joker there's just no negotiating with him <laughs> yeah except he brings gifts yeah. and uh, like that that kind of encompasses the entire audience reaction to that character is when he comes over to Colin Farrell and Nicole Kidman's house and he has such an awkward way of giving the two kids yeah gifts and i love the way that um the movie has him smoking yeah and which you know it's already weirdly offensive like we're talking about eating meat you know yeah. in 20 years what it's going to look like watching every character in this movie smoke every character except for the youngest boy yeah um has a cigarette at some point and watching them like in they're in the bedroom and, and he's like, can I just light up a smoke and have it? And he's by the window and he, it, little touches. He sets the smoke down wrongly on the yeah, window yeah, and yeah. they never acknowledge it, but you know, that's going to burn the, <laughs> but they don't like the camera. Like you're still new at this, it. aren't you? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You would, you'd go just a little further. Yeah. But, um, Oh, and then the, 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 the infamous scene in the movie, like that kind of sums up his whole character. Cause a lot of this movie is around eating. Yeah. Um, the, uh, he has this monologue for lack of a better phrase to Nicole Kidman because Nicole Kidman's character and Colin Farrell's character approach this very serious problem in very fundamentally different ways. Um, and he's eating spaghetti while he's discussing, like basically it's a speech on confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. Like if you're in science, it would be like, don't fall into this like thinking it's all about you and that you've discovered this, but it's, but it's about how he eats spaghetti. And by the way, he's eating spaghetti in the worst possible (laughs) way. Like it's not not like a a gag comedy, but it's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It's (laughs) like, I, you know, I married an Italian. I have pasta once a week. I I, like, I'm looking at this kid. I'm thinking, 
Oh God, you're just going to make such a mess. Get up, yeah. go to the table, well, a, yeah, put that yeah, into yeah. the right plate. What are you yeah. doing? Yeah. And he's yeah. talking about, yeah, the way he eats spaghetti. Um, I mean, you know, the one thing I adore about this movie is, you know, we were talking about how the movie sets you back on your heels. It takes, I'd say at least the first act, maybe even halfway into the movie before we figure out why and what the relationship uh, what is. the relationship is between Martin and um Steven and what I love about that is that throws us into this unease because we're like all right here is a grown man talking to a teenage boy who is clearly not his son there is no way that this should be appropriate and it's kind of funny because like we talked earlier yeah, about how yeah how things are changing in the way we look at films yeah. and you know, like what was okay to say on film or portray on film 20 years ago, which is now not, this is one of those things. It's like, you may not have thought twice about this 20 or 30 years ago, but you are just thinking about it now. Yeah. Yeah. And, that- and he underscores it because, uh, Martin is always like, can I give you a hug? Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, cause you know, we're already creepy. The bet what I can go into even granular look at this which is fascinating it's not only do we not know what's going on but we know enough that when he has the conversation with bill camp that he's lying about things that there's no need to lie about and and but it's also a huge insight to colin's Farrell farrell's character of like denial and hammer denial and hammer denial and rage whatever i mean Um, yeah you watch you watch this man and this kid talking and and hanging out and it's crazy because it's never in it's it's never in a setting that seems inappropriate, you know? Like it's not like he's hanging out in a bedroom or he's picking him up after school. Like it's always it's it's actually inappropriately appropriate. It's always in public. It's always, you know, like like with distance, with like social distance and and it's always polite and cordial, but it's like Mm. There is there is something inherently wrong, even though there is nothing visually wrong with what's going on here. And that sets us back on our heels right from the jump, because they are the first two people we see after Bill Camp and and uh, uh, Colin Farrell have their talk about wristwatches. One other thing I wanted to mention before I forget, and Mm. it's neither here nor there. It just makes me smile to no end that this movie is set in Cincinnati. Nobody Why? sets movies. Oh, yeah. Cincinnati. Like, nobody. It's, it's, it's that perfectly anonymous, big, but not too big American city. Right, right. right? Yeah. And and he contrasts the, the two neighborhoods, like mm-hmm. Alicia Silverstone and their neighborhood and then their neighborhood. And I don't know if it ever says it's in Cincinnati. No, I was actually trying uh, to figure out what city it's in. Well, so was I. So I looked it up. Ah, so now, smart. And it's shot in Cincinnati. Yeah. So I thought it might have been Atlanta. Um, I was when thinking I was Pittsburgh. It. Like there's a bridge yeah, in the background. Like, that's what I feel. Like you see that, that bridge. That yeah. bridge when they're talking about his motorcycle, uh, why he was late or whatever right. on the waterfront yeah. there. Beautiful day. I, I don't <laughs> see too many movies that – no, no, no. Seriously. Yeah. You don't see too many movies because it's a huge, high, wide shot of the city and they're – they're so small you can't see their lips move. And and it, it also lets him do the like wide to tight. Wide yeah. to tight. Yeah. Like when when Colin Farrell's daughter sings like that pop song in yeah. front of the tree. It's yeah. this beautiful, almost honey cinematography kind of shot that would be in some sort of 
coming of age yeah. movie, but it's all wrong. It's yeah. like everything's because you already know what's in play. Yeah, it's a sweet. It, it's it's the only sweet moment in a movie that wants to have nothing to do with sweet moments. The title of the film comes from a Greek play about Agamemnon sacrificing his daughter before he goes to war in Troy. Oh, right. Okay. And um, that play rests because everybody knows the story of Troy from Homer. That play is built entirely on dramatic irony where the audience knows what's happening, but the characters are going to go through anywhere doing anything. And I love the way he's, I mean, he is Greek, but, <laughs> yeah. um, but I love the way he weaves that into a very modern ultra contemporary. I mean, it's set in America, even uh, the new world, uh, you know what I mean? Story. And yet he, I mean, it, it's funny because the, the, the movie's even cute about it because when he goes, when he has to figure out which one of his kids he's got to do something about, and there's this whole segment of the movie where they're he's like weighing the value which yeah. is wrong on every parenting level yeah. ever yeah. um and very provocative but he goes to the teacher and the teacher um says she got a great mark on her book report on the play that this movie is based on <laughs> yeah yeah i mean <laughs> um, okay so it's funny that you bring that up because that was actually something i was going to ask is as much as we enjoy this movie and, and much as we both would agree that this movie is one of the best of the decade would you say that this movie is sadistic? Like this is a movie oh. where let's let first of all let's put all our cards on the table. And if you don't know, if you really don't know what this movie is about, turn back now because we're going to get all the way into it. Because Stephen was the doctor attending to Martin's father when Martin's father died on the operating table. Martin comes back to him and says, "All right, you got to choose one of your family members that that you need to kill. Otherwise, they're all going to die, and they're going to die in this way. They're going to stop walking. Then they're going to yeah, stop highly eating. specific. Yeah, they're going to stop walking." they're going to stop eating then they're going to bleed from the eyes and by the way when that happens you better decide quick because they're going to go fast and then they're going to die steven then has to get when it comes clear that he's just not going to be able to buy reason or bully his way out of this he actually has to get into okay shit what do i do now and this is where i ask is this movie sadistic because this is where we get into Nicole Kidman having the conversation about the cold logic of killing a kid. Like she says, listen, we may as well take one of them out because I can still have one and you can still give me one. We're but young. Yeah. We're young enough that we can do and this. And there's ICF. Yeah. Yeah. So like we, it's, it's, it's a real conversation. Yeah, it's actually says, the only real conversation in the whole movie. Yeah. She's like, we can still have a child, but you know, if you and I are gone, then we cannot have any more children together. So let's just pick one of them. And that, and, and you're watching this and you're going holy shit you know so you get things like that and you get things like you know at, at a certain point martin is finally tied to a chair and beaten the shit out of and threatened with gunfire he like you know bites into his own arm and rips out a chunk is this like would we call this a sadistic movie yes and no okay. it, it it objectively it is. Yeah. I mean, having a parent have to choose between his children is a is a fundamentally and objective sadistic choice. Um, but the difference between Lanthimos and, say, the French sadists, mm -hmm. Michael Haneke and Bruno Dumont, um, like, you know, funny games, like the, 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 the scene, the, the, the 
bleeding from the eyes sequence feels like it could be dropped right into either version of fun yeah. games. Yeah. Um, but I think Haneke is scolding. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I like a good scold. Um, <laughs> but Haneke and to a certain extent Dumas, when they, when they break out the violence are scolding the audience. I actually legit care. It like Yorgos is like, actually he's like, I am doing this for your own good and not to be mean. I, I, I you know, yeah. I, I really, we will hug after. Yeah. We will hug. Even though the movie does not end on a hug in any no. way, shape or form. No. I do feel that in his weird look, unlike Kubrick, unlike Henneke, Lanthimos really legit loves his characters that often taste some pretty, I mean, think of the final shot of the lobster. Yeah. Um, you don't, it doesn't carry through with it. Yeah. I mean, probably does. I, I mean, screen. it's, it's, I think it's a question of how one defines sadism, because if you define the sadism as joy being taken or, or a thrill being taken by the sadist, then no, I don't think Yorgos is actually exactly. enjoying exactly. this. It is painful. It is absolutely yeah. just heart crushing to watch this this go through like we said those cold clinical ways the, yeah the second time we see bob's it legs is. give out you know we watch it from god's eye view like we're two stories up oh and it's see, crazy yeah up. and yeah. we see him get to the bottom of an escalator and just fall flat on his face in a way that you know if you ever saw somebody fall like that you would rush to them like there's no laughing or oh geez yeah no it's not it, it's not a platform yeah yeah all. no that is a yeah. fall and i mean the only reason why it had to be done that high up is because they had to do it in a way where the kid can land safely and it still looks really really nasty and oh you think there's a technical reason for it oh, there, that's a, i never thought of that there, there had to be i mean and it's 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 sort of it's the cool same. it's a cool shot yeah it's a crazy cool shot yeah and i mean they do it again when the daughter drops like the daughter drops in the middle of a choir practice but they they flank her with other students yeah, yeah she's yeah, still a lot of people yeah, yeah she's still like from our eye line she still drops in a very very freaky way like she tries yeah. to grab people as she's going down and she goes down in the middle of that's the scariest thing to me in the middle like, of a christmas song when you see somebody when yeah when you see somebody drop in the middle of nothing like it's one thing if you see them running and they trip you know what I mean? Or if it's it's one thing if you just see no, them like it's, it's the equivalent of what, eating dinner with somebody. Yeah. And them having a stroke in the middle of the meal. Yeah. You are not prepared yeah. for that level of stopping of motion. Yeah. So that's right? the thing is this movie does that to you twice. It puts you in yeah. a very benign situation and then just yanks the rug out from under you and says something's really wrong with this kid and they're both kids. And they're both kids we like. They're both there is nothing not to like about these yeah, two children. They're, they're engaged, they're yeah, disciplined, they're yeah. attractive, they're so, they're vibrant. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so it is sadistic in that way that it gives you this terrible situation to these perfectly nice kids. And yeah, you know, the parents are rich and entitled and whatever. Well, but there's nothing wrong with the kids. The Colin Farrell and Nicole Kidman's sex routine <laughs> mirrors. No, it mirrors what happens to their kids. The, the whole, they call it general anesthetic. Yeah. Where she just lays there. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, that's another detail in the movie where, because I feel like all of these, whether it's sadism, as you defined it earlier, like where the person really means it or where the person doesn't really mean it, it still mirrors. Yeah. It still mirrors. And Henneke 
Lanthimos, lots of, uh, um, they hold up a mirror, right? And that's what this movie is, is holding up a mirror to like the well, worst mirror possible to the parents. I mean, and that's, that's one of the crazy things about Yorgos's career is I now I have not seen Alps, so I can't speak to that movie, but mm-hmm. in, in his films, the thing that I find kind of crazy is his films almost always have some scene of sex, but they're never sexy. One element of it is he wants to say, you know, cinema historically has made sex look very erotic, very romantic, depending on what they need for mm-hmm. that sort of story. But let's face facts, people, sex with a lot of people is really unfeeling. Or it's and, and and awkward, yeah, and, and awkward uh, and mechanical, and, and strangely specific sometimes. Yeah, yeah, and and you know between this movie and the favorite, there are two of the mm. least sexy <laughs> yeah. moments of masturbation I have ever seen. You know, oh, yeah. just just transactional. Yeah. Let's get this done and move right along. And in some ways, the transactional is a great word. Um, but that scene almost feels it's the only scene in the movie where I feel things are out of like, it's a tangent. It's this is a movie that really is laser focused on what it wants to do. It does feel like, wow, that's quite the detour you made there. Yeah. But it's just, yeah. But between, you know, an actress like Kidman twice in this movie, just laying back and basically playing dead to, seduce her husband and the really kind of freaky moment where we see that mildly echoed in her daughter and we're like oh shit like that's the kind of moment where you're like i am totally seeing something i'm not supposed to be seeing you know and i don't know if the daughter knows that or not but we see her lay in a similar way when she's got you know when when she's got martin in the room and between those two things and uh, her her transactional hand job with Bob the the anesthesiologist. This movie is just it's it's not interested in sex beyond a means to an end. I I feel all of Lanthimos's movies are interested in the social language of mating. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and then the act itself, like. The, the passion part is lost. He's like, let's focus on the rules. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? All of his movies feel like, how can I write all of human interaction, all of the social contract rules incorrectly Yeah, to get at the heart of how absurd social contact rules are? Like, I, that's his genius. Like, yeah. all of his movies – the favorite included, although the favorite is, I believe, the least of them. Uh, certainly, Dogtooth, Alps, Lobster, and this are, and and Killing of a Sacred Deer unquestionably is the the peak of the mountain. But I mean, like, hey, listen, even the favorite, the favorite ends on a sexual act, and you are feeling, you certainly aren't feeling aroused in that moment. <laughs> that is not a that is not a film that is interested in capturing the sexual relationship between mostly women in that movie there's you know there's one hetero well another scene. another another uh, transactional like casual yeah. casual i'm going to just write a check here yeah like that yeah. that's what it looks that's, like she's that, writing a check yeah that is lanthimos's <laughs> approach it's, a, it's an interesting <laughs> yeah. approach it's a very yeah. unique approach um so you know again when we get to the okay 
you killed my dad, so now your family's going to die in this very specific way. What we need to talk about here is the lack of an explanation. Like, this is not a curse. This is not magic. Yeah, no, no. It magic. is utterly undefined. Yeah. It is. Uh, and, you you're, and you're cool like the with lobster. that. You're cool like with that. Like the lobster. Like, yeah. if, you don't mate, if you don't find a mate, you get turned into the animal of your own choice by walking in this room. Yeah. That's as far as we're going to give you in the nuts and bolts of the mysticism here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, now, they're like, Look, it's like, it's like questioning why Superman flies. It's like, because of the yellow sun. Good enough. Yeah. Let's, but that's, on. but that's the thing is that we don't, we don't even get in this movie because of the yellow sun. And this is my question. Yeah, we don't you're, that. you're, you are totally cool with that. You don't, you don't want don't the know. explanation. The you don't need yeah, the nuts yeah, yeah. and bolts. You're like, that's, I'm cool with that because I know that that's the one thing is me and you trying to sell this film as one of the decades best. I know a lot of people who are going to come back with, but why? Give me the, the logical explanation. Yeah. They want, the, yeah. they, no, that's not, although everything, this movie, everything this movie does confirms that you're never going to get that. Like yeah. at no point does it go. If you just wait to the end, yeah. Yeah. Um, the psychiatrist will come in like at the end of psycho and explain everything to you. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're not going to get that. Yeah. When we talk about the lack of an explanation um, in television terms, that's lost, you know, lost never gave viewers every single answer to what that island was about and why and how and whatnot. And there were a lot of people who hated that uh, when they got to the end. There were a lot of people who dug it and, and were like, you're right. I'm not going to be able to get the answer to every question I want because it's only going to read more questions. It's also the Sopranos. Did Tony die? Did Tony yeah, live? Yeah. Why did we cut the black? Who knows? Who cares? You know, what matters is the story. And in a weird you know, parallel way. And I, and, you know, if I was thinking about this, this might have been one of my choices for the other side, but I didn't really think about it until just this moment. It's, it's Groundhog Day, which is in which is this the movie. movie. Yeah. You know, you yeah, don't no, know never, why uh, Bill Murray is living the same day over and over and over. You just know that he is. Oddly enough, th there is a draft of the script for Groundhog Day where it is explained why he's doing it. And Harold Ramis early on said, that is not going to fly. Let's just say. Do it. Yeah, he's living the day over and over till he gets it perfect because he is. And that's the thing. And this kid can make this family die in this grotesque, slow, drawn out way, one by one, and even make one of them healthy again by dictating just so yep. Yep. just because he can. But here's the thing. Um, when you watch groundhog day the reason why you buy groundhog day is the film language sure the the flip of the analog clock the sunny and share the slow camera move over to the bed of him getting up when you're in the hands of a filmmaker that knows how to tell the story visually yeah. all of your little niggles of uh su suspension of disbelief go away yeah. and the genius the genius of killing of a sacred deer is that it is some of the best visual framing film language 
communicating tone by camera angle, like what cinema is supposed supposed to do. Most people would say movies don't have to do it, but most people would also say cinema has to do it. Like everything that you would explain should have a French term to describe it. This movie could be a term paper. This movie could be a thesis. This is this is that kind of movie. And really and truly, in the hands of a lesser director, it would not be. If you just handed this to some... No, this is high, not a blacklist script. No, if you just... shopped around. <laughs> yeah, if you handed this to some director in residence at Sony, they would not come back with something nearly this interesting from the same source material. Um right down to that really macabre resolution, you know, where Steven finally figures out, I have no other way out of this, you know, kiddo is bleeding from the eyes. I know I've got just hours and I got to do something. All right. Everybody in the living room. And I'm like, it's so absurd, but it's horrifying. God. And it's tense. It is. And it's silly. It's silly beyond words. It's, it's, you know, it's so, you know, we've got a guy, like, he's like, this guy has finally tied up his family. He's got that hunting rifle that, that we saw him threatening Martin with earlier. And he's like, well, I'm just going to spin. Swing this around. I'm not, I'm not even going to eeny miny mo this thing. I'm just going to spin and hope I hit something. And the movie, you know, the movie is even absurd enough to make him miss twice, several times and, and have to fiddle with the gun. Like it just keeps ramping the tension uh, based on that. And the, the, the beauty of that whole sequence is even though that's supposed to be his cathartic, I've made it, he still absolves himself of making a decision by just the randomness of how he does it yeah. kind of says, well, circumstance, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, so he, in, in a way, most movies, like you get back to where you were, but you're a different person at the end. Yeah. Colin Farrell's not. And that may be the true horror and tragedy. So this is the point where we get to the, the question of, you know, you you were going to bring up about what makes this film one of the best of the decade. And this is what I usually ask about. What about the killing of the sacred deer for you encapsulates the last 10 years gone by? It did come out in 2017, yeah. which, um, you know, the global American defined order of um, the Barack Obama presidency flipping in to the Trump presidency where everything is heightened and strange and wrong and choices have to be made for reasons that make no ethical or moral sense anymore yeah. that that is also that is um, so, also to be clear that's also a post brexit world yes absolutely i mean that is the mood like it, it also for that matter not only the 20 teens but the i mean technically covid started in the last two months of the last decade. And, you know, you would think in your Winchester Chronicles that you would pick movies that would make you feel good, take your mind off it. It really hasn't been that way. (laughs) This is the putting out the oil Derek fire by blowing up the oil Derek. Like you put out a fire by creating an explosion and that hopefully takes all the oxygen out. (laughs) Here's the, I mean, listen, I do know that in one of the great fires of San Francisco, the way they determined that they could stop the fire from spreading through the whole city was to dynamite 
a set, a yep. whole set of, of city blocks to basically barricade it behind just a yep. wall that it wouldn't be able to. And it's like, we are destroying a neighborhood to save the city. And that's what they do is, you know, in this film, Steven destroys one of his children to supposedly save the family. Now, whether to or not theoretically triage yeah. the situation, yeah. it does not look like it was terribly effective from that no. final shot. No, um, the other, so. the other thing is if you look at dog tooth came out in 2009. Yeah. Um, and this came out in 2017. So it's basically a decade of Yorgos Lanthimos on the world cinematic stage. To, to echo two of your points in terms of the decade of Yorgos, the thing that I would I found fascinating in the last 10 years is this was the decade where the world came to the commercial stage. And, and Yorgos is one. Um, the three Mexican directors, Guillermo del Toro, Inuritu and uh, and Alfonso Cuarón, you know, yeah. all of them Oscar-winning directors now, all of them playing in a bigger sandbox. Uh, Bong Joon-ho, of course, went to the mm-hmm. bigger bigger stage. Yorgos as well. Um, the 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 Hollywood has always even wanted- even even Lone. I can't pronounce her name. Lone Scherfig. Lone Scherfig. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. She made the bird box for yeah. Netflix. Yeah. This you know is, what I mean? Which was a huge streaming. Hit. Yeah. Hollywood in the past, Hollywood has wanted to bring the world in and, and make them hire guns and let them do their thing. And it didn't always work. Um, this was the decade where, because the system is now so very different and it's not, the, the the corporate studios running the whole show that it it the, the worm is turning you know if you look at the 10 directors that won best director oscars over the last decade uh i think if as you just throw out um damien chazelle for la la land and um i think that's it uh the rest of them were all directors who are outside of the american system the way that this film actually echoes pandemic is funny is the one thing I love about this movie is this is a movie this is a movie that centers on a family that wants for nothing their house is incredible their clothes are impeccable they have amazing jobs their kids are are a students and this shit comes for them anyway you know that is if you want yeah. to talk if you want to talk about and it an manifests echo, itself like a disease it, yeah it manifests itself yeah. like a wasting disease yeah this yeah. this yeah. this film cares not for how much healthcare you can afford. This is that movie in terms of the type of medical attention the kids get. Like they get a room full. Oh, right. Because they're both doctors. Yeah. Yep. They get a room full of the top doctors from America trying to figure out why there is nothing clinically wrong with these kids, but their bodies are shutting down and yet they can't stop it. It's the same sort of thing. It's like pandemic cares not for how many doctors you can afford. It is going to come for you anyway. If I were to actually say my own answer of how this film encapsulates the last decade is, and this is something you have talked about at great length on your show and just all over the place, is this film wants to underline the idea of protective parenting, um, helicopter mm. parenting, Uber parenting, whatever you want to call it, which uh, feels really and truly like it went on steroids 
in the last 10 years in terms of what we let our children eat and what we let them see and how we let them play and on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And the idea that that is going to create better, safer families. It's like, you know what? If it helps you sleep better, we have not been rating these movies, uh, which works great for Kurt because he doesn't like rating movies anyway. But um, we have been ending these sections on a souvenir, something tangible or intangible. If you could take away from The Killing of a Sacred Deer and keep, you would. Kurt Halfyard, if you could have anything from this movie, what would you take? The absolute takeaway for me is this film's camera work. Mm. Like the actual, that high overhead... It's a horror movie in that the camera is often stalking never the kids. Yeah. Well, rarely the kids. Almost always the parents and mostly Colin Farrell. <laughs> um, um, my souvenir, uh, it's it's kind of personal for where we are right now in terms of the world. My souvenir is I want that watch. Um <laughs> I'm with a, a leather strap, leather strap, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I am with a leather strap actually because I have a lot of metal straps. I'm a guy who still wears a watch. Um, I like it's it's one of those things that is always on my person. And because during pandemic and because I've been laid off, time is much more uh, fluid and loose, and I'm not on such a rigid schedule. I haven't been wearing one. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a nice metaphor. Time yeah, is over there. Yeah. My watch yeah. is still on the dresser. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that, that was my, when I saw that watch, it's my kind of watch and I miss wearing one. Um, that was the thing that I grabbed. Um, that is the killing of a sacred deer. You may despise this movie. You may love this movie. I would love to know. Let me know what you think of this You movie. won't forget it. That's you will not sure. forget no. this movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, love it or hate it, it's going to make an impact. <laughs> Ryan at the matinee.ca, Twitter, where I'm matinee underscore CA or facebook.com slash dark matinee. What do you think of Yorgos Lanthimos killing of a sacred deer? We're going to take a quick break and come back on the other side right after this. So join us right back. We're back. Kurt Halfyard, Ryan McNeil. It's Winchester Chronicles Dispatch number eight. We've been talking about the killing of a sacred deer. We're going to do something else slightly different for the other side. Uh, Mr. Halfyard this morning messaged me saying that he had a good little bundle of other side selections. Mm-hmm. And while I have one film that I can mention, I'm mostly going to turn it over to you. And, and you know, I, like, I'm sure most of what you've talked about I've seen, so I can, I can rap about these. But it, this is mostly going to be your section, just for something a little different. As I alluded to earlier in the conversation, there is a micro subgenre of supernatural person, stranger, shows up and implodes generally a wealthy family. Yeah. And I don't know if it was the first one, but I feel like in... If you're a filmmaker, this is your this is the font. This okay. is the uh, the watershed movie, and uh, it's Pasolini's um, Tiarima. Uh, never seen. So it's uh, Terrence Stamp would be in the Barry Keon role. Is a stranger that comes into a rich family and basically wrecks them. Um, and then Takashi Miike in two thousand. 
uh, did like the grotty video version, pretty much an exact remake of, of the film called Visitor Q. Then Simon Barrett and Adam Wingard made made the Terminator 2 version of this movie called The Visitor, which is definitely (laughs) the poppiest version of this. But Killing of a Sacred Deer, it it follows all – like you think, well, no one's ever made a movie like Killing a Sacred Deer before, my god. But it does follow all of the rules of that – I mean there's there's another side genre like the – the like hand that rocks the cradle or Pacific Heights or like psycho person comes in, but that's not this genre. This no. is a mystical supernaturally something like yeah. there's no grounding in reality in any of these movies. This person is a ghost essentially that drifts I into mean, the, into their world. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like the, one of the films that jumps to mind because I happened to watch a bit of it the other night was it's, it's in a little bit of a way, like when I mentioned how this movie killing of a sacred deer is Hitchcockian, it's somewhat shadow of a doubt where Joseph, oh, my favorite Hitchcock. Yeah. Which, where where Joseph Hitchcock. Cotton plays. Yeah, Uncle Charlie. Although he's a relative. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. He's yeah. He <laughs> comes in. Yeah. There's not, there's not the supernatural element to it and they know who he is. Um, right. But it's that same thing of you take this very nuclear oh, yeah. situation and then you throw in, you know, a stick of dynamite that, that doesn't, it's not even a, st- a stick of dynamite. It's like a stick of dynamite that looks like a banana, you know, that yeah. then just throws their whole, nuclear situation he's like the nicest guy you know uh he's the guy that gets stood up at the end of the third man you know like come on he like even that he walks away to the happy zither music um okay so and then there's a tangential that could fit into that genre with teorema and uh um the visitor no visitor q is jonathan glazer's birth which stars nicole kidman right in the colin farrell role the whole denial thing and if you've ever seen that movie which is one of the great movies of the aughts yeah i think it's 2004 um nicole kidman's husband dies in a perfect um shining tracking shot in fact it's the same cinematographer operating the study cam the guy who oh, wow. invented the study cam that yeah. does just that shot in the movie as a nod to the shining um and he dies in in that tunnel in central park and then later on in the movie she's engaged to danny houston and uh this kid this like you know nine-year-old kid comes back and says he's the reincarnated version of her husband it blows up her uh, everything um and uh yeah, it's and then you mentioned the other one. Um, well, we need to talk a, about Kevin. Well, it's funny because the thing about Birth is that's another one of those movies that starts to tread on the inappropriate. Now that one is more overt. Um, oddly enough, I well, still has the infamous yeah, bathtub. Like, I mean, I still haven't seen it. Every time it crosses my oh, brain, so I perfect. know. Every time it crosses my brain to see it, I, 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 I think about it for a minute and then I, I don't come back to it. Um, and it's one I haven't been able like, I mean, I don't have a physical copy of it and, and you know, we're, we're locked down. So finding physical copies of anything right now is a little bit tricky, although the world is opening up. Um, but I always, it's, I'll come across it on a list or on a podcast or in an article and I'm like, son of a bitch, I still, haven't seen that movie it's, and i count myself as a person who's a fan of his follow-up film under the skin uh so yeah, I, which was like 11 years later yeah yeah brian you know uh, and glazier i mean glazier fits into this 
canon of directors yeah, with Lanthimos. Post-Kubrickian. Yeah, post-Kubrickian you know, yeah. Directors. A person who gets A-list talent, who makes very handsome movies that could deceptively draw in the wrong kind of audience, but basically then is only going to play in minor keys and really mess yep. you up. Minor keys is a great description. Um, and, and much like this movie's opening heart overture birth has its overture which is always the scene that usually gets talked about in in birth right smack dab in the middle of the mm. film there's this perfect uh it's, it's actually i'm pretty sure that they um the director of um portrait of a lady on fire uh like stole the the signature scene from oh. birth as her final shot in that movie which that movie, yeah. in no way diminishes how it's used yeah yeah one of the great movies of last year absolutely astonishing and it has so much on its brain and in its technical toolkit like if you watch movies from a that movie is genius as well but i did notice like oh you used a little birth scene in there and yeah yeah use that shot and the last one you mentioned earlier which was um we need to talk about kevin where the where the mystical character is the child of the main character also very good bad parenting movie um and it also has a kubrickian touch and and uh yeah lynn lynn ramsey Mm. and and like another one of those movies where yeah like you say like not bad parenting in terms of this couple they they did everything they could you know like like you this is not absentee Parenting no, like, that. no. like that, that's the thing like when i say that, that the last and decade poverty and no, it's not no. external and that's the thing when i say that the last decade was an example of over parenting i'm not talking about you know a, like a, like a nanny state of of you know overindulgence i'm talking about like maybe just you know you're you're dialed up at 12 maybe dial it back to about seven and your kids will be fine yeah you know this is a right, film right. yeah this is a film where you know you can tell that the parents john c Riley and tilda swinton tilda swinton in one of the best performances you will ever see um which is saying something because yeah, that's her whole career yeah, that, that's her that's her that's where she lives um they're doing everything yeah they're 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 absolutely wonderful parents and they have another kid that turned out just fine just to prove it yeah. and yet yeah, yeah, yeah and yet you know watching them go through what they go through with kevin before shit gets real yeah before yeah 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 breaks you, get the, you get the blow by blow before yeah. um but uh also lynn ramsey and yorgos lanthimos or at least the cinematographers they hire and jonathan glazer's cinematographer in birth spend so much time on precise camera work there's there's nothing loose about these films these are precise meticulous filmmaking and i love uh, it yeah what what love it what the what the shade of white is to sacred deer the color red is to we need to talk about kevin like you it's almost want to retire the color red out of everybody's after palettes that movie. after I that know. movie. It's so, bananas. It's so uh, and, that, and I think when you make movies this weird, like I said before, if the filmmaking is this confident, mm-hmm. you carry it. If it's sloppy and messy and we hope for the best, um, if it was a Seth Rogen and, and James Franco joint, this shit is going to fail hard. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. they're just like seat of the pants shooting uh but no these are people that have thought about this a lot and it might look like shit is just getting off the rails on screen but rest assured every action is precise it's like right? uh it's like a game of mousetrap you know 
you got to set it all up. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you, you have to, you have to do it that way. Otherwise, it's it looks work. like chaos when it's happening. No, but yeah, crap. but you can tell. It's a lot yeah. of work. Yeah, they lined up that ball bearing so that it would flip the soldier into the bucket. And this and that. Oh yeah. my god. Yeah. Um, I mean, so, one of the ones that I thought about, um, it, it's kind of an easy answer for for this kind of thing as well. Is I actually thought about um, Magnolia in terms of the storytelling of. But it did happen, you know. Like this is a movie where. Oh, you mean the big scene in the middle of Magnolia? Well, just just in general, like th- this is a film that starts off with these tales of coincidence, right? Like it gives us these right. three coincidences from history to start off. Ricky the movie. J, rest Ricky, in peace. Yeah, Ricky narrated. J, Ricky J, narrating ah. the story, um, and 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 these wonderful three little vignettes to say that you know sometimes in life these coincidences happen and they may defy logic and explanation, but it makes them no less true. And that's the thing that I do love about sacred deer is, you know, some listen, sometimes people out there, they just get really sick in really weird ways. And there's just no explaining Mm. it, you know, and it could be because somebody out there doesn't like you, or it could be that you're sick with something that they haven't figured out yet, you know? Uh, Mm. and, And that's, you know, what Magnolia lays down is, Listen, sometimes there is a logical explanation for why everything happens. Sometimes it's a matter of, <laughs> you know, a severed nerve or an allergic reaction or whatever. And sometimes it just happens to rain frogs. No, now you want to make me throw a serious man in there, which is like the ultimate for that, you know? Yeah. Maybe, maybe uh, if, if this were the Cinecast and we had to come up for a, like a, a show title, the show yeah. title would be Accept the Mystery. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's, you know, and, and yeah, this is... Like you say, there was a whole subgenre of this kind of movie over like that that got really handsome over the last decade because the toys became a lot cheaper. Um, mm-hmm. Because you now, as we said, you now are bringing the world into the Hollywood ecosystem. Whether or not it's them making the movie on their own and you buy it later, or you bring them to the studio and, and just say, all right, go play. Cause we know you're going to make something interesting. Um, and that you're, you know, we're now a better, like a century into film and every generation is much more steeped in the language because they've studied not just the generation before them, but the generation before that and the generation before that, every one of them gets smarter. You know, and it's it's like that. Listen, this is a film about a doctor. It's like that in medicine too. You know, every disease you cure is one less mystery. And and what mm. used to rack scientists' brain and doctors' brain of how do I treat this is now just one pill. A film trying to establish, well, how do I make something truly terrible, absolutely terrify the audience when I can't show it? They're just like, well, we're just not going to show it. We're going to yeah, find it. Yeah. Yeah. It's that's, like, it's I can't actually that simple. Yeah. I can't afford to, I can't afford to show the monster. Well, just don't show the monster. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's that, that was the thing for the longest time that nobody thought about. So you got these, you know, the, cheap, Jaws yeah. the old Jaws thing, right? Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. That, so it's, uh, it's, it's a, we haven't really touched on that kind of film over the Winchester Chronicle. So I am really happy to be touching on that end of what we've been seeing. Well, there we go. That is the eighth dispatch of the Winchester Chronicles. And I'm deeply thankful for uh, Mr. Halfyard for coming in. Come on back on Monday, July 13th for our ninth dispatch. We will be discussing Mommy.
by Xavier Dolan. Uh, mm. Kurt can be found at Screen Anarchy. Uh, do you have anything coming up that you want to plug? I know it's kind of weird times well, for writing about film. Uh, nothing specific in terms of content, but uh, we did spend some time talking about the poster for Killing of a Sacred mm. Deer. And every Friday over at Screen Anarchy, I, I write a poster column. Oh, so nice. uh, this is a, diff- a different way. Not very many people talk about the other things that go around movies. You know, rightly, you want to talk about the movie itself. But it's, uh, I mean, you're you're approaching it very much in the way of like art of the title, the way that they dedicate an entire absolutely, space absolutely. to the title sequence. We'll, we'll link to the, the one from Friday in the show notes. So take a look in the show notes for Kurt's uh, most recent piece on the uh, – the, the, the subtleties of, uh, of film posters. Uh, if people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? Uh, I don't spend a ton of time on Twitter, oh. but I do have an account. Um, I'm more of an Instagram guy. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, uh, if people want to get book suggestions and food uh, food porn, go to, go to Instagram. And, and- and in a previous time, film marquees. This is true. Um, <laughs> but we will get here. back there. I promise. But all, all of my uh, all of my social media accounts are at Triflick. T R I F L I C. Very nice. My site is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Stitcher Radio, Blueberry, Apple. Basically, anywhere there's podcasts, you'll find my show. If you don't, if you have a platform of choice that my show is not listed on, Google Play, it's there too. Um, Let me know, drop me a line, and I'll put it on your platform of choice. And you can get alerts when new episodes drop and uh, subscribe for free. If you want to drop by and do an episode of one of the decade's best films, or you have feedback on The Killing of a Sacred Deer, uh, let me know. Ryan at the matinee.ca, Twitter, where I am matinee underscore CA, facebook.com slash darkmatinee. Any final thoughts, Mr. Halfyard? No, it was an absolute pleasure, though, to uh, to come back in and and do one of these. And I'm so happy you let me talk about this movie. Uh, I, I feel like a lot of people know about this movie, and you know, people talked about it when it came out. But if you never got a chance to go back and see Killing of a Sacred Deer, and you're listening to this, this is the time. Oh, we spoiled the living shit out of it for you, unfortunately. <laughs> and I always say the best movies can transcend their spoilers. They're, they're less. What 100%. they are about one more how they are about them. And I believe this, this is one of those one of them. For Kurt, I'm Ryan. Wash your hands and call your person. Cheers.